0: From ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah, welcome to the LabMind podcast, where we discuss the future of diagnostic laboratory testing. I'm Dr. Brian Jackson. So today is Monday, the first day of October 2018. It's actually the the 2nd of October in Australia, and I'm saying that because I'm very pleased to have as our guest on LabMind today, uh, Dr. Rita Horvath from uh, University of New South Wales in Australia. Dr. Horvath uh, started her career in England, where she was a lecturer in clinical biochemistry at Oxford University. She then went on to chair the Department of Laboratory Medicine at the University of Szeged in Hungary, um, and then later moved to uh, Australia, where she uh, lives and works today. Dr. Horvath has held leadership positions in a number of international professional societies. I first met her in uh, American Association for Clinical Chemistry uh, Evidence-Based Laboratory Medicine Committee. And that is uh, her main scientific interest, which is evidence-based laboratory medicine and is the uh, topic that I wanted to, um, to cover with her today. So, Dr. Horvath, welcome to LabMind.
1: Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me.
0: So to start off the conversation, let's talk about what evidence-based laboratory medicine even is. So when you get that question, how, how do you define that?
1: Well, you know, we established the IFCC, the International Federation of Clinical Chemistry Evidence-Based Laboratory Medicine Committee with one of my close friends, Sverre Sandberg of Norway, almost 20 years ago. And at the time, we were obviously trying to find the right definition for evidence-based laboratory medicine, and we turned to the general definition and principles of evidence-based medicine and tried to apply that to our profession. Evidence-based laboratory medicine is not that different. Uh, it is a tool that assists clinical management of patients uh, by integrating the best available research evidence for the use of laboratory investigations with the clinical expertise of the physician and the needs, expectations, and concerns of the patients to improve care and outcomes of individual patients and to improve the effective use of healthcare resources. To me, the aims of evidence based laboratory medicine uh, are to improve the value and impact of laboratory testing on health and healthcare delivery. And uh, I think um, we all agree that laboratory tests offer value only if they are clinically valid. In other words, they contribute to improved patient centered outcomes, uh, that is, they contribute to more efficient use of healthcare resources. So, in brief, evidence based laboratory medicine helps us define more objectively if laboratory tests have value.
0: How does this work in practice? So um, h- how do you see the application of evidence-based medicine in, in the laboratory world?
1: I can best sum this up by Neer Graves saying uh, who was the author of a highly acclaimed book uh, called Evidence-Based Healthcare. Uh, because he said that the role of the laboratory professional is to eliminate poor or useless tests before they become widely available. In other words, we should stop starting the use of such tests. Another uh, task we have is to remove all tests with no proven benefit or those that in fact can cause harm from the laboratory's repertoire. In other words, uh, start stopping the use of those. And also to introduce new tests if evidence proves their efficacy and effectiveness. And this is particularly true in the new omics era, uh, whereby we should start starting uh, the use of the test or stop stopping the use of a test provided uh, their value can be demonstrated.
0: So how does this work when you have a test that may have a strong evidence base in one uh, scenario or one type of patient? But maybe not in a different uh, population or a different kind of a setting.
1: Yeah, I mean this is this is a very important problem, and this is this is one of the limitations of evidence-based medicine, but it's extremely hard to control because doctors have quite a lot of liberty of using those tests. So um, the laboratory professional can to be to, to a certain extent be a guardian of how those tests are used, but in the lack of clinical information, we often don't use don't know. That the test is really requested for the right patient uh, and for the right indication. So this is something that the laboratory profession could influence uh, by being a closer consultant with the doctors and being more of a part of the diagnostic team. But uh, that is quite a challenge, I know, in most countries.
0: Um, one thing that I'm actually quite interested in asking you, partly because of your experience uh, you know, practicing laboratory medicine in, in a number of different countries around the world, is what's your sense of, of the role of, of clinical pathology, um, sometimes referred to as chemical pathology or clinical chemistry, across different countries? I'm most familiar with what I, I see here in the US, but I, I sometimes get the impression that some other countries have a larger traditional role for the laboratory professional.
1: So I, I really practiced so far in only three countries, the UK, Hungary, and, uh, and now in Australia. But I think the problems in healthcare and in laboratory medicine in particular are very much the same across the globe in, in most developed countries and even in, in some of the developing countries. There's another area that I find very important when looking into how laboratory medicine specialists work and that is how they interact with their customers, that is, with the clinicians and patients. I have never practiced in the U.S., so I cannot really comment on the role of clinical chemists of being equivalent and clinical partners and providing advice on test utilization and interpretation. When I worked in the U.K., I found That model probably the most useful in terms of close clinical liaison. Chemical pathologists in the UK have been very actively involved in running various clinics. I was running lipid clinic, bone clinic, thyroid clinic, diabetes clinic. Um, And there was a large emphasis of training laboratory professionals in metabolic medicine. Providing interpretation to complex laboratory data uh, requires that, that we exchange clinical information with the clinical physician with the treating physician and that we are part of the diagnostic team so i think these are the areas where laboratory medicine in many countries need to further develop and i believe that our knowledge will become even more important now in the ever growing era of uh, omics I have not yet seen myself very good examples of laboratorians being advisors to patients. Our primary customer is the clinician who requests the test. Nevertheless, I think we can learn from pharmacists and how they have earned a higher position in the medical hierarchy and how they serve more directly patients. So for me, one thing is certain. We need to move out of the lab and focus more on these relationships as otherwise our role will be taken over by others.
0: It sounds like clinical pathology in some countries is maybe more respected than in the U.S., or the, the relationships between clinicians and and lab professionals might, might be stronger in some other countries than in the U.S.? Is that your impression? That
1: was, so for me, the U.K. example is probably the best in terms of consultative uh, services and being part of the team, but that was achieved because Uh, laboratory professionals acted like clinicians rather than sitting in our office behind our big screens and analyzing, you know, large amounts of data. Uh, I think we really need to get out of our chair and, and, and move around and basically just make ourselves visible because once clinicians know that you can actually help them and teach them about things they were not even aware of, uh, I think they start valuing your, your contributions, but I think the training um, of the future chemical pathologists will have to be such that they don't fear of going out. They don't uh, just stay back and and perfect the analytical performance of assays. They really have to be the interpreters and the. Um, Promoters of the clinical utility
0: of that. I love the comparison to pharmacy because we've definitely seen that in the United States over the past 30 years or so. Pharmacists have become much more clinically active and it seems to have really benefited their professional status as well.
1: Absolutely, and I think that this is something that we should not shy away from. Basically, go to other professions, see what they have done, how they have done it. Okay, that's all right. If we copy that practice, we could succeed. I do see the opportunity that clinical mass spectrometry with complex uh, interpretation of data. Uh, and also the big data that we have in the laboratory, which we should be utilizing more to to draw conclusions that we can then take back to the clinician. So I think let's get out and let's present to clinicians what we know and let's ask questions. We shouldn't be afraid of showing our value.
0: You mentioned genomics and mass spectrometry and and these analytic tools which uh, have the ability to generate huge volumes of data, which makes the interpretation that much more challenging. I have a question for you on this. Do you see any tension between um, this this trend in personalized medicine, which seems to have a lot to do with gathering much larger volumes of, of data on individual patients, and the traditional goals of evidence-based medicine, uh, which has tended to be more of a, a large population perspective, you know, limiting availability of tests until there's a broad evidence base?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question because obviously the two approaches seem to be conflicting And I do remember the days when I was first exposed to evidence-based medicine back in Oxford, which was really in Europe, uh, the home of evidence-based medicine. And that's that's where the whole European movement of evidence-based medicine started. David Sackett was at the time a director of the evidence-based medicine center and he came from Canada, McMaster. And then all the Oxford professors who wrote all these fantastic textbooks of um, uh, internal medicine and medicine, they disliked the whole approach. They just did not agree uh, with this, you know, evidence-based approach of generalizing uh, knowledge to an individual patient. And I even heard one of um, the co-authors of the famous David Snackett book of how to teach evidence-based medicine uh, that he said that the Oxford professors, they did not believe that generalization of the evidence to individual patients will work. And the average patient on whom the evidence is generated may not be a good representative of all patients. So randomized control trials are really in the the center of evidence-based practice, but they can tell us which interventions are effective, but they don't necessarily tell us which patients should receive them. So this is where the conflict uh, arises between generalizing population-based data, big data to individual patients. So for me, it is pretty obvious that medicine needs both evidence-based medicine and personalized medicine and they should go hand in hand. And uh, we need a bit more collaboration between advocates of both. So I think they are complementary, uh, although they may sound to some extent antagonistic. But even in personalized medicine, you need to know which biomarkers, for example, are effective in uh, guiding uh, treatment decisions. So for those, you do need data, you need
0: evidence. It seems like when, when you look at, say, the Cochrane Collaboration, or, or here in the U.S., an interesting example might be the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, you know, groups that take a very rigorous approach to the evidence, it seems like the, the topics for which they can make authoritative statements are fairly limited to those topics where there's a really extensive evidence base. That's very
1: true, ultimately. The legal responsibility lies with the doctor anyway, so I don't think that evidence should be applied in the same way to everyone. Because there are a lot of comorbidities, a lot of confounding factors in each individual patient, depending on what medication they also take in addition to the one which probably has the evidence for uh, drug interactions, etc. So the doctor really has to take into account all those individual. Issues applying evidence-based medicine can actually be harmful if you just apply it blindly. So I think that the clinical judgment uh, still remains.
0: So let me ask you one final question: uh, If you th- look forward into the next, you know, five or ten years of where you see the the laboratory profession heading and and the science of laboratory medicine heading as well, uh, what are you the most excited about right now?
1: That's a very good question. I am really excited about two major uh, areas which I already mentioned to you in our discussion and one is uh, how this omics era can influence our practice and clinical mass spectrometry but I realized that I really have to learn more about it so that I can run a laboratory which provides those services um, in a meaningful way. Um, it actually opens up a lot of discussion for us not only with clinicians but also with researchers Uh, academic researchers who are so keen to develop new biomarkers but they don't yet know how to translate that to practice. So for me one of the exciting areas and where I can apply all the evidence-based methodology is to help researchers to develop biomarkers which then we can use in practice and then I can become the interpreter of those essays uh, to the clinicians. And the other one is how to utilize the data we have in the laboratory on a daily basis and convert that into some sort of a conclusion for the doctors about how they use the test, the value of the test, what are the pitfalls and limitations of using the test. So I think that that's that's another field, that we need basically knowledge managers almost in the laboratory more than, than scientists who can operate machines. So I would put more money into data managers, data analysts, um, and use the, the, the resources of IT technology to help us convert in data into information and information to knowledge, which then we can communicate in the consultative process to our clinicians.
0: Well, as an informatics guy, I, l- I love your vision on this one, uh, moving from you know analytics into a much larger big data interpretation world. All right, well, thank you so much for being available for this conversation today. Everyone, this has been Dr. Rita Horvath from University of New South Wales in Australia, and we will, uh, we will close on that. Thank you for listening to the Lab Mind Podcast, sponsored by ARUP Laboratories. ARUP is a not-for-profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. You can find more Lab Mind Podcasts at www.arup.utah.edu or subscribe to LabMind using iTunes or your favorite podcast app.